Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this launch of the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. But I think that Jeremy, who is sitting immediately to my right, will forgive me if I also mention that it is the launch of this new building um, and this Sheikh Zayed Lecture Theatre, the first event we have held uh, in here. So if there are any teething problems, I hope you'll forgive us. Um, but we are hoping that everything is fine. Uh, we couldn't have wanted a better event to open this new facility than the one we have because this Grantham Institute is, I think, a terrific illustration of a public-private partnership of many dimensions and on a subject which is of considerable interest to everyone in the school. The people we are going to hear from this evening will give you all of the different dimensions of that partnership. From Jeremy Grantham, on my immediate right, who is the extremely generous founder and has produced a hugely generous donation to get this institute going. To, on his right, Nicholas von Baumhardt, the chief executive of Munich Re, who are funding a very important program within the institute, which he will talk about. To Nick Stern, beyond him, who is going to be the chairman of the institute, and of course, the author of the Stern Report and the IG Patel Professor here. And then Ian Diamond at the end, who's here from the ESRC, who have themselves contributed very significantly to this centre. We won a competition for this, to host this centre from the ESRC last year. And there's one further dimension of the partnership, which I should mention since we don't have someone from there this evening because perhaps that would have been over-egging things, but there is a strong link in this venture with Imperial College, where Jeremy has also funded a parallel institute which will look at more the science of climate change, whereas we at the LSE believe uh, that we should focus and that it's appropriate for us to focus on the economics of climate change. You're going to hear uh, from all of the people uh, on the panel, and um, I was down to speak for 10 minutes, but upstairs, Jeremy and I did a kind of cap-and-trade um, <laughs> arrangement, uh, whereby I would reduce my emissions um, <laughs> from 10 minutes to under five, which I have done, uh, in order to give him uh, a little bit more time when it comes to him. But we are going to proceed with, in fact, Ian Diamond uh, from the ESRC next. So I hand over straight away to you. Hi, colleagues. Thank you very much. Uh, as I came down this evening, I learned it was the first day of term uh, here uh, at LSC, and it I reflected that it's 36 years, therefore, since I received my first lecture uh, here uh, at LSE. Uh, and during the time that I was here, I learned very much about LSE as a place where teaching was absolutely brilliant, where there was a commitment to integrating that with research, 
and that the inspirational researchers uh, who taught me uh, at that time were also deeply committed to having both an academic and a non-academic impact uh, of their research. Um, he also helped me personally in finding me a grant from the Social Science Research Council, now the Economic and Social Research Council, to continue uh, with that work. Uh, and therefore I end up here uh, this evening speaking to you. And ESRC, for new readers, is the Economic and Social Research Council. We receive a large, generous amount of money from uh, the public purse uh, to uh, fund research. And in so doing, we believe passionately that no one should receive funds to undertake research if they're not prepared to use the results of those funds where appropriate uh, to have impacts on the people that paid for them. And one of the things that we do uh, very clearly is to fund directed research in areas of strategic national importance, and I can think of no greater uh, at the moment globally than that of environmental change. There are many strategic areas that we work on. Uh, this is one and one we take incredibly uh, seriously, and we're hugely uh, proud and privileged to be able to fund uh, LSE Leeds and indeed, therefore, to work in partnership with Imperial as well through the Grantham Institute on uh, this fabulous uh, agenda, uh, which we will hear more about in a minute. Uh, the, the area that of climate change is one of the most beautiful examples, I think, at the moment of a research area which truly does require an interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary approach where natural scientists merge seamlessly uh, with social scientists and social scientists working not only uh, on issues such as risk and we're privileged I think that, that Munich are here uh, with us this evening but also uh, on areas around individual choice and individual change so that it is not just one area of social science uh, that we see this agenda reaching but right across the social sciences uh, and through into the entire research base. And I know my colleagues in the other research councils uh, are absolutely envious of us in being able to fund this centre as part of the broader Living with Environmental Change programme uh, Research Councils UK is funding. So, so Howard, thank you so much for the invitation to be able to say a few words tonight. I wish the centre got speed uh, on behalf of ESRC and say how much we look over the next uh, few years to seeing both the brilliant new research, research takes time to happen, but also the, the non-academic impact uh, on the lives of the people of this country and beyond, uh, which will have lasting benefits for society. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, next up is Nicholas uh, von Bonhart, who I have met in the past in the uh, world of finance, but both of us are hugely relieved not to be talking about that uh, this evening. Um, uh, but he's, been, he's chairman of the management board of Munich Re, has been with the company for almost 25 years. And Nicholas. Well, thank you, Howard. Thank you for this kind reception. And I'm known you're not all here for me, for, then rather for someone else but I'm taking my chance. First of all, we are an insurance group. We are known for reinsurance and we are dealing with risk day and night. This is our raison d'etre, that's what we are there for. Some call us the master of disaster. 
that refers to the reinsurance side of our business because, amongst other risks, of course, we are very heavily involved in everything that has to do with natural catastrophes. And among the natural catastrophes, earthquake is one, but there's all the other weather-related risks. And this, of course, then makes it obvious that we as a company have started early on in the mid-70s already to deeply dig ourselves in all the questions that uh, come along with the issue of climate change. Actually, we made climate change an issue then when it was not at all en vogue. The fact that I'm here still, I I shouldn't say still maybe, with all the financial crisis going on, maybe is a good sign for all who consider investing in our company. This little bit of marketing may be useful here. We are still walking upright. Well, but now coming back to my topic, climate change, I may say Howard and Ian and all of the London School of Economics, and certainly I say that to Jeremy as well, because under this roof we work, we are extremely proud, delighted, and excited to be able to partner with the Center for Climate Change, Economy, and Policy and contribute as Munich Re what we can contribute. We combine our forces, if you like. What we bring to the table is 30 years of research in, of course, natural sciences and all that comes along with the perils I mentioned. This is, first of all, data, a lot of data across the universe. And it is a lot of experience in the different countries, experiences both with the catastrophes themselves, with the people that were affected seriously, be it insured or not insured, and certainly also with the governments and politicians. On the other hand, we always sensed and actually we, we, we felt it as a pain, it was a dilemma that we were having a white spot. We could work wonderfully with all that comes along with the risk as such, but we always felt we were short of being able to translate that into the economic consequences. What does it really mean to economies? What does it really mean for what kind of impact is it and what does it mean after all, because we are not purely philanthropic, what would it mean also to our business? And when we started our research work on the natural sciences, of course we were a group of few only. Today we are dwarfed by all the money that is being showered in some institutes and be it government money, be it private money, so our research group today in relative terms looks very small. When it came to economic research already, then we were small and that's why we never really were ready to heavily invest and felt we need someone to help us. And that's why we are so thrilled by the perspective now to be able to combine an economic research powerhouse like the LSE with what we think could be and should be interesting to the LSE as well. And the insurance industry as such should play a role in all that, we think, because it does not only take on the risks. We have invested in research and we have tried to the extent we could at the time to make public aware of the crisis we are running into. And even though the financial crisis of these days, weeks, and months is huge, and certainly the biggest after World War II, I still think it's relatively small to what might happen if we do not stand up and altogether try to battle climate change. So insurance industry should play a role here. We can be very helpful also when it comes to supporting or accompanying the development of the tools 
from the reinsurance or reinsurance angle to adapt to climate change or to mitigate climate change. There's many ways that insurers can help and as I said, may not be the last to just make at least people aware by putting a price tag to certain risks and saying if you don't, or if you want to get rid of this risk, this is what you would pay for and that only, sometimes at least, makes people aware of how big the risk really is. So, not taking up more time, sustainability for a reinsurance company that always has to think very, very long. I always say it's written up on the forehead. We must think long and we must act long. That's very helpful in the current crisis, by the way. And <laughs> this thinking, of course, on sustainability and the topic of climate change, I think is a perfect match also from our point of view. And I can only repeat how delighted and excited we are be able to partner with such a prestigious university like the London School of Economics. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Well, for, for some of the more mature members of the audience, the Grantham Institute has a sort of uncomfortable Thatcherite connotation. Uh, <laughs> so that was the birthplace of uh, Our Lady. Um, but that's not the origin. Uh, Jeremy Grantham was born in the UK, was educated at Sheffield and then at Harvard, runs a huge fund management company called GMO, based largely in Boston but with offices around the US, but also uh, with his wife, Anna Laura, who is also German, um, runs a foundation for the environment. And as you will see in just five seconds. Jeremy is a huge enthusiast for what we're doing at this centre as well as his financial support. We're grateful for both his financial support and for his enthusiasm. Jeremy. Yeah, on behalf of my family and the foundation, myself, we are indeed uh, passionate about the environment. I think Climate change is the most important issue within the environment. And it is far and away the most important issue in, in finance, in government, and in fact in life in general. Just a word on that topic. I believe firmly that Malthus was right, and like me in investing, he just got his timing wrong. The, uh, we're engaged in the third <coughs> great die-off since the beginning of, of the Earth. The first two were caused by, one was definitely caused by a meteorite and the other probably was. And the third one has been caused by the, the effect of humans hitting the earth uh, about as powerfully as a meteorite. We've been around for about 500,000 years and for 99% of that time we were a pretty harmless species. We ended up with 15 million people 5,000 years ago which is a healthy species, neither more nor less. And then in the final 1% of our lives, we went from 15 million to 6.5 billion. Needless to say, we can't repeat that multiplying effect. Starting in the last 5,000 years even, most of the action has been in the last 300 years, only 6% of the 5,000 years. In the first 1,000 years from 5 5,000 years ago, the population doubled every 1,000 years at a very elegant 0.1% growth rate. 
That went on until 1700, a population of 500 million. And then in 300 miserable little years, we multiplied from 500 to 6.5 billion. The world has been growing in terms of GDP at 4.5% for the last two years. If you were to increase the physical wealth at that rate for 3,000 years, it obviously would be a lot, and everyone knows that. It would, in fact, be a mass far greater than the entire known universe. Even 1% for 3,000 years in terms of population or possessions increases by 9 trillion times. If we were to keep up the growth rate that Malthus experienced in 1800, 1% in the the UK, we were to keep it up for 3,000 years, we'd have 9 trillion times 6 billion people. Now you work that out. It's not a question of having place to park your possessions which fill the known universe. It's parking yourself. Suffice it to say that most of the explosion that went on was due to the unfortunate hydrocarbon revolution. And that, in turn, has led us to the, to the spot that we're in, the fix that we're in. So this is an incredibly important issue. There is another, another crisis going on. But it's, the climate change is a wonderful example of the need for long-run planning, long-term planning and cooperation. The other crisis in the stock market is a wonderful testimonial to the lack of long-range thinking and long-range planning, particularly in the U.S. I I, I worry about this because it's going to make fundraising pretty hard. And in America, some of the most generous people have been what we call hedges, hedge fund operators. In the the U.K., we have very little to lose since uh, in the U.K., the hedge funds adopt uh, the otherwise admirable Yorkshire adage as of uh, you'll get an out out of me. (laughs) The uh, director here wrote in in the uh, FT last week uh, an interesting article about uh, Harry Hindsight. Uh, And in general, I agree with his point, but in this case, I am Harry. And uh, I did predict this darn thing, and unfortunately... (laughs) It's been, uh, my dire forecasts have been far too accurate and in fact exceeded. And to prove it, I bequeath you my, uh, (laughs) on behalf of Harry Hindsight. um, I'm here because of my friend and former colleague, Paul Woolley, um, who retired from our firm and went around looking to do good. And he had this crazy idea that he would set up a center for the study of capital market dysfunctionality. What a ridiculous idea. (laughs) The the idea that the markets weren't efficient and functional at all times, preposterous. And uh, he uh, approached um, Imperial. And pretty soon, being a salesman, he had me talking to Imperial. And they were thinking about a climate change center. And being easily persuaded, uh, we pitched in and made it uh, an institute. And then Paul Woolley, being a a very slippery fellow, uh, defected to the LSE. And pretty soon, he was talking me into doing the same at LSE, and here I am. And actually, that was perfect timing, because by then, the penny had dropped that the hard science was slowly and finally winning an uphill struggle 
against what we call in, in the U.S. the deniers. Um, and they have been a very powerful and effective lobby. But we are winning. The hard science is slowly and surely being adopted as the state of the art. And now the war, the front line, is really in the economics and the costs of all this. And there the opposition is much more formidable. There are serious, respectable, well-respected uh, economists who disagree with the good guys. They are completely misguided, but they are respectable and uh, established. <laughs> the... Uh, Our real windfall gain in this enterprise at LSE, however, was not in the good timing um, of Paul Woolley moving from place to place, but in the acquisition of uh, Nick Stern, who uh, I think is probably the most suited single person to represent we the people, homo sapiens, uh, to governments around the world and to the public in general. We have to put our case forward. He has to put our case forward to persuade the intractables to encourage governments to act responsibility, which is never easy. And, uh, and if they don't now, we're indeed in dire circumstances. Now, I want you to forgive the bootlicking. I uh, engage in bootlicking every 20 years, whether it's necessary <laughs> or not. The, uh, our foundation is entirely happy with this relationship and the initial great cooperation uh, that has been demonstrated with Imperial. Uh, we only lack for one thing for these two organizations to put their complete best foot forward, and that is about two or three times as much money as our foundation can muster. So if anyone here is sitting uh, on lots of dough and looking for something really worthwhile, uh, now's the time to consider it seriously. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Well, of course, all four of us have so far been merely warm-up men uh, for the main events uh, this evening. Uh, Nick Stern, one of the finest comedians... Sorry, economists! <laughs> uh, sorry, I was reading from a letter Nigel Lawson sent to me. Um, um, uh, of, his, of his generation, and he's going to talk to us about a global deal. Nick. <laughs> Thank you all very much for, for coming. Um, it is a tremendous sense of occasion, um, uh, not only the new building, but most importantly, um, the new centre and the new institute. And the special combination of uh, backing that we've got for this. And uh, let me just underline it again. It's uh, a charitable foundation, uh, Jeremy and Hannah Laura, Grantham's Foundation. It's a public funding research council partnership. It's a uh, private sector partnership with one of the biggest and most thoughtful firms that you can imagine. And what I hope is widely regarded, um, including by friends in Imperial, as one of the best universities in, uh, in the world. It's going to be this kind of partnership we're going to have to put together um, in the global deal and in other ways 
to make real progress on tackling climate change. So the partnership we've got here mirrors the kind of action partnership that we're going to uh, need. But I'm enormously grateful to, to um, uh, Jeremy and Hanalora, the ESRC and Munich Re for their backing. Uh, Ian Diamond has uh, just left. He said he would be very careful to leave before I spoke, so it could be quite clear that it had nothing to do with what I was going to say. It was simply <laughs> personal. <laughs> But it, Ian, I must say, very early uh, saw the importance of all this in the work of the research councils, and indeed the country and the world as a whole. The partnerships, too, amongst academics are extremely important to us. Um, it's very good to see uh, um, Imperial uh, here today uh, in uh, the most senior levels and the most talented levels, and uh, the combination of the two, which is formidable, and uh, we thank you all, and we're already enjoying that collaboration. The ESRC Centre is a collaboration with Leeds also, and we're looking forward and already working on that as well. So it's a great coming together here, which I think is of um, fundamental importance and indeed exciting. Now, um, let me get to the subject. Um, we're going to talk about climate change. Uh, for me, climate change and development together are the most important problems of the 21st century. If we fail on one, we fail on the other. If we fail on climate change, we will undermine all the progress that we have been making and all the progress we should be making on development and fighting poverty. If we fail to put a coalition together, which is low-carbon growth, which allows the overcoming of poverty, uh, we will actually fail on our action on climate change. They're intimately related, and we have to think of them uh, together. Now we're uh, a research institute, a research centre it's a research collaboration and research takes time and research takes hard thought research takes a bit of privacy and quiet sometimes but at the same time we have to think about making policy and making policy now. This is a problem and I'll illustrate it and underline it that the later we leave action the more difficult it becomes. We have to be able to respond to the question, given what you now know, what would you now advise? Now, most academics run a mile when the question is put like that. Say, what would you now do? They say, well, of course, I'd need lots more time for research. It's the kind of research project that uh, I would follow. Then having done that, of course, we'd never be uh, really confident in our results and we'd have to do it again and have to do it differently. And... Uh, just give me some research money and I'll come back to your question of given what we now know, what we, you now advise that we do. Um, LSE is different. Um, we are at the centre of um, London. We're close to government. We're ready, uh, not close to any particular government. We're close to uh, governmental activities. And uh, we are ready to face that challenge. And indeed, if you look back at the original foundation of the LSE, it was all about that. And what's fun about the scientists uh, in Imperial, they're ready to respond to the same kind of question. And I think there is no tension between the long-term research and the constant use of research and what we know to formulate policy. And I'll come through the global deal and through... Uh, where we should be going in future to exactly that. Now, I'm going to run pretty quickly through um, the economics of the story because I want to talk about the global deal, how we put it together, and how we put it together in these difficult times. 
Um, I'll give you a bit of arithmetic, but I won't give you too much economics. But there's a lot of quite difficult economics under this, as indeed there's a lot of quite difficult science under all this. I know that uh, many of you here are not economists. That is, of course, uh, your fault. Um, <laughs> there were many choices that you took in your life. That was just, um, that was just one of them. But uh, I hope that in the discussion, and uh, many of you who are economists, or all of you who are economists, will see the kind of economics, and it's difficult economics that runs underneath all this. So let's start with the way in which the science uh, uh, describes what, to us what kind of problem this is. We are in concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, around 430, 435 parts per million of CO2 equivalent now. Um, that's essentially what catches the infrared and causes the global warming, which causes the climate change. We're adding around two and a half parts per million a year. You just have to listen a bit for the arithmetic, but you can all do multiplication and addition. That's all I'm offering you. The, um, we start 430 or so, and we're adding two and a half a year parts per million, and that is rising. That two and a half is getting bigger. It's going on to three, and if we don't do much, it'll go on higher than that. So suppose we run this forward for, um, to the end of this century. We'd be adding well over three on average per year if we did that. 100 times three is 300. Add that to 430. Then uh, you're at 730, 750, because it would probably be higher than um, uh, three a year averaged over the century. What would it look like if we did get to 750 or so by the end of the century in terms of concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? We'd have a roughly 50-50 chance sometime early next century of being above 5 degrees centigrade relative to pre-industrial time, say, middle of the 19th century. 50-50 chance of 5 degrees centigrade or more. This is not a small probability of a... Uh, big disaster. This is a high probability of a catastrophe. Why do we call it, why do we use language that strong? And as academics, we shouldn't often use that language that strong. Well, just think, five degrees centigrade um, below where we are now was roughly, um, very, was very recent, 10, 12,000 years ago, the last ice age, when um, the ice sheets came down to roughly um, London and New York. Excuse me, using London as a reference point. That's where we are. That's where I was born and brought up, and that's the city that I understand the best. The, um, where were people? Of course, they were closer to the equator than that. What happened when it melted? The UK separated uh, from, or Great Britain, I should say, separated from the continent. No bad thing, I hear you cry, but <laughs> I'm not here to debate that. <laughs> The point is that these things transform where people can live. Five degrees centigrade above where uh, we are now, we haven't seen for 35 uh, or 50 or 30 to 50 million years in the Eocene period. Earth covered uh, in swampy forests, alligators near the North Pole. Again, those of you who don't spend much time at the North Pole would not worry very much about the alligators. That's not the point. The point is it has a radical effect on where people can live and absolutely transform where people can live. If you move people around in very large numbers, you get conflict. That's surely one thing that we've learned over the last two or three hundred years. 
the effects of that would be absolutely devastating. We're talking about movements of population on a scale that would involve very substantial war. Now, of course, it's very difficult to cost all that. That doesn't stop brave people uh, trying. But I think the most important way to see this as insurance. For 1% or 2% of GDP per annum, we could reduce that probability of 50% of being above 5 degrees centigrade somewhere in the early part of next century down to 3. Now, I don't know whether 3% is 1% or 5% or 6%. I don't know whether 50% is 40% or 70%. But you can see that the magnitude of the insurance you get for a pretty modest 1% or 2% of GDP is enormous. And I think most people, just thinking through in this kind of insurance-oriented way, the way that Munich Re uh, quite understandably operates and interacts with people and companies and other insurance companies, thinking through that way, I think most people regard it as a good deal. Like a one-off, one or two percent increase in costs, you do your energy differently and you stay doing it differently. Actually, you can see, put it that way, it's quite likely that as we get cleverer about doing it differently, that cost actually would start to come down. But we shouldn't get too optimistic too quickly uh, about that. Even on the 1% or 2% of GDP, it looks worth it. Now, we um, human beings can mess up policy. We've got a good history of doing that. And if we mess up policy, it will cost more than 1% or 2% of GDP. And that's why it's so important to study it well, so that we can learn and see how to... Uh, keep the cost down. So roughly speaking that's the story. If you want to think of why it costs 1 or 2% of GDP well if we're to hold at, um, less than 500 parts per million which is the origins of the bit that uh, I just described of keeping the probability below 3% because if we held at 500 parts per million that probability could be down to 3% of being above 5 degrees centigrade sometime next century if we held at 500 parts per million, we'd have to cut emissions by roughly 50% by 2050, relative to 1990. They were roughly 40 gigatons per annum in 1990. We need to get down to about 20 gigatons. Relative to business as usual, we'd probably, depends how you define business as usual, we'd probably have to take out 60, 65 uh, gigatons by 2050. What would that cost us? On average, maybe $30 a tonne of CO2 is not a bad guess. Some much less than that, of course. Some negative from energy efficiency, but on the margin, there'd be a bit more than that. 30 might be an average. Well, $30, a bit more arithmetic, $30 times 60, 65 gigatons. Science, science uses giga, economists uses billion, but uh, the same thing. And uh, so you've got 30 times uh, 65, roughly, and that's, I hear you cry, $1 trillion yeah? per annum, roughly speaking, by 2050. What's the, uh, what's the GDP going to be like in 2050? Well, we hope if things grow a bit, it might be $100 trillion. That's 1%. Yeah? Big margins of error here, but it's very important to get a feel for this, uh, this kind of uh, arithmetic could be more than $30 a tonne. Business as usual could mean we have to cut much more. You know, it could be a, a good bit higher. But you can get a feel for the ballpark. So I've given you a very crude, fast story of why the costs of action are much less than the costs of inaction and a guide to this kind of scale of action we should be taking. When we talk at the G8 summit last year, 
in uh, Heiligen Dam in Germany and this year at Hokkaido in Japan about cutting by at least 50% relative to 1990. That actually gets left out of G8 statements, but that's what they really meant. If you uh, cut by 50% relative to 1990 by uh, 2050, you've got a fighting chance of holding uh, concentrations below 500 parts per million. So at least some parts of the public discussion are along the, are along, are along the right lines and are absolutely not arbitrary ready to, relative to the science and economics of the story. Now, we're in a position to um, talk about what the global deal looks like. So let me run fast through the global deal and then talk about the obstacles of getting there. First part of the story is that the target reduction by 2050 should indeed be at least 50% uh, reductions in emissions relative to 1990, allowing us a good chance of holding below 500 parts per million of CO2 equivalent as concentrations in the atmosphere. Now, who does what? Well, the rich countries are responsible for well over half of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere now. They're richer. They've got access to uh, better technology. They surely should take a big responsibility in this. What does big responsibility look like? A little bit more arithmetic, even easier, this one. Just take Europe. We're, if we're roughly 10 or 12 tonnes uh, per capita um, of um, CO2 equivalent per year. That's our flow of emissions in Europe. Where do we need to be as a world? Well, we've got to get down to 20 gigatons as a world by 2050. How many people will there be in 2050? We can get pretty close to that. It's going to be about 9 billion. 20 divided by 9, roughly 2. We've got to get down to 2 tonnes per capita. Yeah? None of this arithmetic should be troubling you. You've all got O-level maths and all that sort of thing. The, we are at 10, 12 tonnes per capita in, in Europe. We've got to get down to something like 2 tonnes per capita. That's divided by 5. That's the 80% reductions that we talk about that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger declared for in California. He really meant to say 90% reductions, but we'll let him get away with 80% uh, reductions because the US is over 20 uh, tons per capita. Uh, that's the kind of numbers we're talking about in the EU. Gordon Brown, his speech at Labour Party conference, uh, said that that would be the target, and I'm sure that uh, that's on Ed Miliband's desk as the new Secretary of State for... Um, energy and climate change, and if it's not, we'll make sure next week that, uh, that it is. So the world through the G8 summit talking about the right kind of numbers. The rich countries talking about the right kind of numbers. Barack Obama has declared for 80% reductions, as uh, Hillary Clinton did. John McCain a bit less than that, but John McCain has a better track record on uh, this particular subject. I refrain from uh, commenting on uh, the position of the uh, Vice presidential candidate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I always thought that, uh, you know, the LSE with an open mind might consider inviting uh, ex President Mbeki to come and talk about the link between HIV and AIDS and the president of uh, BAT to come and talk about the link between lung cancer and, uh, and smoking, and it might be a good idea to invite. Nigel Lawson and Sarah Palin to come and talk about the uh, science of uh, uh, climate change. You know, all sorts of strange things happen at the uh, LSE. But it, 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 climate change is a remarkable subject that economists, politicians, lawyers, um, cab drivers, people who cut hair, um, all seem to know about the science of climate change and have a position 
Um, but I think uh, the right way forward on all this is to ask the scientists, and that's why we stay so close to our colleagues at uh, Imperial. So, first part of the global deal, 50% reductions by 2050, um, 80% rich countries at least by 2050, basic milestones along the way. Next part of the global deal, 8 billion out of the 9 billion people um, in 2050 will be from the developing world, the currently developing world. We do indeed hope that many of them be, will be a good deal richer than now, but eight, nine, 8 out of 9 means that if you want an average of 2 over the 9, you'd better have an average of pretty close to 2 over the 8, otherwise you're clearly not going to make it. So that means that the developing world has to um, lead on this story. It's their world. They're most uh, strongly affected earliest, but also their actions will be absolutely fundamental as to whether we make it as a world. I've given the arguments for rich country leadership. I've given an indication of the scale of the leadership uh, in terms of time of action. But leadership on the global deal in this case, uh, in my view, should lie with the developing world. It's their world that we're talking about in 2050. So it should not be a global deal that's put together by rich countries making proposals and poor countries batting them back as unsatisfactory, often rightly so. Um, it has to be something that's put together in a genuinely collaborative way and uh, we're working and talking to governments around the world uh, particularly with um, India and China and taking that discussion uh, forward but I'm hoping very much that that leadership uh, will be there what does it have to be on? well there has to be a recognition that the two tonnes per capita by 2050 will apply to everybody China's already five tonnes per capita the Chinese economy by 2050 will be several times larger than it is now. I don't know how much larger, five or ten times as large as it is now. They're already at five tons per capita. If they're going to get down to two, then they've got to cut by a factor of five or ten times 2.5. You've got to bring five down to two. A factor of five or ten times 2.5 is obviously 12.5 to 25 as a fraction of GDP. What we're talking about here is decarbonising economies, essentially. Just as if the rich world is going to cut by 80%, factor of five, and they're going to double their output by 2050, they've got to cut emissions per unit of output by two times five, which is around ten. What we're seeing, essentially, is implications of what we're describing here is essentially decarbonising the uh, economy. Because there'll be a few places like agriculture where you can't take it all out. Now, the good news is that's perfectly possible and I described the kind of costs that might be involved. So I've essentially described as the second part of the global deal the challenge facing uh, developing countries and the kind of build-up of response that's necessary. Now, in my view, the conditions that the developing countries should lay down on the deal they propose to the rich countries is we want four things. We want 80% reductions from you and we want them to be credible. We want you to show the mechanics of low-carbon growth. We want you to be involved in trading, which helps us finance uh, reductions and we want to have technology shared. Some of our technology will develop in developing countries. That's fine and there'll be progress there too. But essentially technology has to be shared after we work out mechanisms for doing that. Those are basically the four conditions which I think that developing countries in formulating their global deal should be proposing at the same time as they accept their responsibilities to 
bring down their own emissions to roughly two tonnes per capita. Now, there's nothing I'm saying here that makes two tonnes per capita anything of great virtue from the equitable point of view. It's simply arithmetic. We've got to get down to two tonnes per capita. If you've got a billion people above two tonnes per capita, the average is the average. You've got to get... uh, If you've got a billion people at four, then for the average to turn out at two, you've got to find a billion at zero or two billion at one. The average is the average. This isn't Lake Wobegon where uh, um, all the women are strong and all the men are beautiful and all the children are above average. The average is the average. This is the... It's arithmetical. And... At least in the United States, more people would have heard of Garrison Keillor. I'm sorry about that. Um, (laughs) So I'm not making an ethical statement here. If we all get down to roughly two tonnes per capita, it won't be exactly because there'll be carbon trading uh, around that time. If we all get down to two tonnes per capita, we can make it. If there are big bodies above, we won't. What that's saying is that by the time we get to 2050, everybody should be drinking out of the same size glass. That's a very weak notion of equity. What about all the guzzling that went off for 200 years previous to 2050? You run it back to 1850. So the notion of equity I'm offering here is actually a pretty weak one. You could make a much more powerful argument for equity than uh, is implicit in what I've just done. Third part of the global deal, already implicit in what I've said, carbon trading is going to be very important. The global deal has got to be effective. It's got to cut by enough. It's got to be efficient, it's got to keep costs down, and that's why markets and carbon trading are so important, and it's got to be equitable. And I've already been discussing the notion of equitable, and the flows through the finance markets are part of that story. Fourth part of the global deal, we've got to cut deforestation, responsible for around 20% of our emissions. We have to stop deforestation, and we have to stop it fairly quickly. If we do, we'll gain so much. You gain biodiversity, you gain much better control of the watersheds. Why have there been such serious floods in Bihar over the last couple of years? Two reasons. One is that uh, the glaciers in the Himalayas have been retreating, um, something like 15% in the last 40 years. They're the sponge, if you like, that catches the water. In the words of Manmohan Singh, the Prime Minister of India, the water tower of Asia. The second reason, of course, is that you've had so much uh, deforestation in those hills that their retention of the water is much less, and it flows down very quickly. You can see why, with Judith Rees and our, uh, as one of our great water experts, this is a subject that's so important to uh, climate change. Deforestation has so many benefits, stopping I should say, deforestation has so many benefits, as well as the story about reducing emissions. It has to be done as a part of development. Um, the Minister for Strategy for uh, Brazil was here, coming, came through the LSE about three months ago, and he said, look, this is about, um, we're, we're going to develop the Amazon. There are lots of poor people in and around the Amazon. This is about um, combining the attack on deforestation with development. It's all wrapped up in the uh, same story. I've emphasised technology. I haven't got time to uh, dwell on that. We can't throw out any technologies, in my view. If we tie our arms behind our back, um, we're not going to make it. Renewables, terribly important, but so too carbon capture and storage for coal, and we rule out nuclear at our peril. Um, I'm not the world's greatest advocate of nuclear, but neither do I think it's very sensible to rule it out. We're going to need all the technologies that uh, we can get. And we're going to have to invest in them because we're all going to learn from what other people do. 
In particular, we have to understand carbon capture and storage quickly on commercial scale. Experience at a pilot level, we know how to do it in terms of catching the gases, but we have to ask, is it going to work on scale? We need to know the answer to that question very quickly. Imperial is going to help, but it can't do the job unless there's experimentation out there of actually building these plants on scale. And that's the kind of challenge that we'll face on technology. We have to find ways of sharing these new technologies, just as we have to find ways of of sharing new drugs for HIV AIDS. That was the fifth part of the global deal. The sixth part of the global deal is adaptation. Um, It's the poor countries that are hit earliest and uh, hardest. Um, Everybody will have to be involved in responding to climate change, but there's a great inequity in this, in that the starting position is in large measure shaped by the behavior of the rich countries in terms of low carbon growth, in in terms of high carbon growth for a couple of hundred years. They have the resources, they have uh, the majority, far from all, but the majority of the technologies. Development in the context of a more hostile climate is more costly. There's no separate exercise of adaptation on the one hand and development on the other. They're inextricably bound together. This is development in a more hostile climate and much better language than adaptation. There have been starting to be some numbers on how much extra it will cost to do development in a more hostile climate. That's the kind of thing which I hope we at the LSE will contribute to. Our colleagues at the World Bank and UNDP are already working in that area. But by 2015, it might cost 50, 60, 80, 100 billion more than we would have thought had we been um, uh, ignorant of the challenge of climate change. And to be honest, um, we were pretty ignorant in the development community of the challenge of climate change when the overall numbers were put together. Believe me, I know. I uh, was chief economist of the World Bank when we went to Monterey in 2002 to discuss the financing of the development goals. Before writing this uh, report on uh, climate change, I wrote the report with colleagues, of course, for the uh, Commission for Africa, which was the underpinning of Glen Eagles, which was the underpinning of the promise to double aid to Africa um, between 2005 and 2010. You'll remember the concert in the park and Bob Geldof and all that. Um, In those analyses, climate change was not factored in as it should have been. Uh, I'm partly to blame. I'm not the only one. But we have not, we must make sure we don't make that mistake again. So we have to step up to the plate on funding for development. The arguments for moving to 0.7% by 2015 in Europe, which we're committed to do, of um, overseas development aid as a fraction of income, were overwhelming when those promises were made in the summer of 2005. 0.7 has been around for ages. The promise in the summer of 2005 was by 2015. We can't make that mistake next time round, and we have to step up to the plate on those promises. Believe me, otherwise, the uh, inequity of all this risks scuppering the global deal, but more important, it's the right thing to do. So there's a six-part description of the global deal. Uh, Colleagues, uh, many of whom are in this room, uh, and I wrote a paper put on the LSE website, the most important form of publication, on uh, April the 30th of this year. Those who want to chase that down can look at it in more detail. Very quickly now on the route. This has to be a global deal. How do we get there? Let me say something first about countries and then about issues. The most important understanding in this area is going to be between the United States and China. 
The next President of the United States will, I hope, and there's reason to believe, or reason to hope, support the son or daughter of the Warner-Lieberman bill uh, in the first part of next year, the cap-and-trade bill for the United States. It's fundamentally important that uh, whoever he is does exactly that. Um, I think that the uh, atmosphere for that <clears throat> would be transformed by a new occupant of the White House. Um, far be it for me to get into politics, but I've always been a great admirer of the fixed-term presidency system in the uh, United States. The, um, that change in atmosphere, change in attitude to the White House, we've spoken both to the Obama and the McCain uh, teams on this, is really pretty likely. It has to work well. It has to go forward quickly. In, with that kind of leadership, with some kind of uh, discussion and the sharing of technology, um, with making that uh, cap-and-trade system reasonably open, I believe that uh, the reaction in the developing world could actually be changed. And uh, I would hope the next President of the United States gets together with the President of China in the first few months of next year and that climate change is at the top of the agenda. It's our job as citizens of the world to try to uh, help that along, to make the case, to show it's possible, to set out the risks, but above all to be optimistic about what, uh, what can be done. Um, Europe will have a very powerful role to play, and Europe has been a pretty good leader on this. Uh, discussions in India are changing radically. They're totally different from what they were uh, two years ago. Um, India has, now has a climate change uh, action plan that we were involved a little bit in, uh, in discussing uh, with, the, uh, with the Indian authorities. Um, India now realizes very clearly that it's not simply great uh, inequity and that the rich countries have to take the lead. Um, they recognize very clearly that as a big uh, growing country, they will have to think through their own effects. Both China and India understand two things very clearly. A, they're very vulnerable and B, their potential deal breakers. If you understand those things, as they do, very smart people, um, you concentrate. And that concentration is there. The deep resentment at the inequity of it all is still very strong, and absolutely understandably so. But it's changing this argument, and uh, I think uh, it uh, uh, can go on changing, and will go on changing. We have to deal... Now, going, I talked about countries, let's deal about arguments. Some people will say, oh, it's all too difficult, it costs too much, and it will make us uncompetitive because not everybody will come with us. That's usually a slogan without numbers. If it's going to knock 1% or 2% onto your cost index, that won't bridge the gap of the relative wage rates between Europe, United States, and China. That's small relative to the kind of exchange rate fluctuations that we see. In most cases, the, competitive argument, the competitiveness argument is, as I described it, a slogan without numbers. In a few areas, it will matter. We may need sectoral deals in some areas. Indeed, we probably will need sectoral deals in some areas like aluminium, steel, uh, and so on. But I think we can put those together. The second, a second part of the story is to show that low-carbon growth is possible. Um, Bill Clinton uh, has a way with words, and uh, the way he put it uh, when he spoke to the Democratic Convention uh, in Denver was to say that we would want uh, people not to be impressed by the example of our power, but the power of our example. Um, I guess that's why he got re-elected. The... <laughs> notwithstanding the circumstances. The... Um, 
And that is the power of the example. It is extremely important that businesses, that individuals, above all uh, rich countries, show the power of the example. To show that low carbon growth isn't a fiction. You can actually uh, make it happen. Uh, we can describe it as analysts. We can get together with our colleagues in Imperial and Leeds and we can say what it looks like. We can work out the incentive structures that you need to put together to make it happen. But showing it is uh, very uh, important. We used to have a rule when I was Chief Economist of the World Bank and you, we had to go and talk to people about policy and what might work. And uh, the question that you often got is name one place that they've done what you're saying and it did work. And it's a very fair question. The power of the example is enormously important. We used to say that one example is worth uh, 500 theorems and 1,000 regressions. So that is a huge obligation on all of us to show what can be done. So the answer on low-carbon growth, that question, how does it work, will in large measure be an empirical one. So I've described something of the... Uh, of the politics of the combinations, something of the kind of arguments we have to deal with. All the issues I've described you can recognise not only as immediate but also quite difficult research questions and they will indeed be research questions for Grantham. Now, um, last part of the story of how we might put it together. What I hear you cry will be the difference of these turbulent times. Won't everybody be thinking about something else? Well, they should be thinking and it's our job to think and to help other people to think. One thing that we've learned from this experience is that if we, ignore, if we ignore risk and the build up for risk for a long time we will be punished. This thing has been in the cooker, this financial turbulence, for 10, 15, 20 years. You can date it in various different kinds of ways. And what happens if you ignore a problem for 10, 15, 20 years? If you ignore the risks inherent in your activities for 10, 15, 20 years, you get into the kind of deep trouble. And it is deep trouble that we're in now. But we're in at the risk of a serious recession, a few percent of output for a few years. The risks that we face from climate change are losses which are much bigger than that for a much more extended period of time. And if we wait for 10, 15, 20 years on climate change, our position will be much more difficult than it would be if we acted now. Why? Because the simple ratchet effect that I described right at the beginning of the build-up, two and a half, three parts a million each year, going up, you do nothing for 20 years, and your 430 has gone past 500, and uh, you're in very difficult circumstances. Delay in this area is extremely dangerous. So one lesson we should take away from what's happened is ignoring the build-up of risk for 10, 15, 20 years leads you into very difficult positions. A second lesson, well, it's an observation really, is that in difficult times you need to cut your costs. Energy efficiency, important at any time, is even more important now. And lastly, and particularly important, we've got to grow out of this. We've got to grow out of this by investing in real, valuable, productive stuff. There's nothing more real and valuable than low-carbon infrastructure. And this is going to be really substantial in the years ahead. The IEA are estimating of the order of um, $20 trillion of energy infrastructure investment over the next 20 years or so. Roughly $1 trillion a year. A um, bit less now, a bit more uh, later on. A significant fraction of that will be low-carbon. 
35% of the electrical capacity installed in the United States last year, 35% was wind. Um, so a goodly fraction of that trillion dollars a year or so of investment will be in low-carbon infrastructure. Those are big projects. They're important projects. They're projects that can drive growth in the good old Schimpeterian way of uh, new technologies, new ideas, new opportunities giving you growth spurts. So if we're far-sighted on this, the right way to grow out of this problem is to back uh, low-carbon infrastructure. And one of the uh, more satisfying parts of the very amusing growth of Hank Paulson's three-page note to a 450-page bill when it finally got passed was that a lot of add-ons were there, some add-ons you wouldn't want to hear about. But one of the uh, add-ons was to keep going some of the uh, tax breaks for low-carbon um, investment. So not all of the 400, not all of the extra 447 pages were uh, pork barrel. Uh, some of it was sensible. Um, probably somebody makes some money out of it too, but that's fine if you're making money out of doing uh, good things. So let me close on the implicit research program in what I've just said, because this is about celebrating the, uh, uh, the birth of a research institute and the research centres and a research collaboration. We clearly have to understand well the policy structures, the incentive structures that we're going to need to change behaviour in the way that we describe. What's the role of prices and taxes? What's the role of regulation? It's clearly going to be a combination of two, of the two. We didn't go to um, unleaded petrol um, through having a price um, for lead. We got to unleaded petrol largely through regulation. And it helped to keep costs down because the car makers could see that they could uh, make in bulk and they wouldn't be undercut by uh, dirty cars. Regulation is part of the story. But this is a market failure. It's the biggest market failure the world's ever seen. We're all involved in the story. We all suffer the impacts and the price approach to um, market failure, taxing or carbon trading, is fundamentally a sound way forward. But we've got to understand and study where regulation, where prices, where taxes, how to combine them. There's some difficult economics in there, which is a lot about uncertainty, second best, failing capital markets, the more difficult end of economics to help you understand that. Similarly with technical progress. An idea is a public good. An idea is an externality. If I have an idea, it's available. The, the marginal cost of the idea disseminating should be zero. How do you promote these ideas in a way that's economically efficient? It's a difficult question, and it's particularly difficult in this area because we want to get those, uh, those ideas and technologies out there as soon as we possibly can. A deeper problem than the problem of... Um, getting very rapid dispersion of drugs for HIV AIDS. Dramatically important, though, that is. Because it's more complex. You can define a drug with a chemical formula. You can't define the technologies with a simple formula. Lots of it is about logistics, know-how, management, finance, and so on. These are packages. Um, we have to understand much better the role of risk. And here the collaboration with Munich Re is going to be particularly important. How do you cover these risks in the best possible way? What kind of advances will help reduce them? What kind of information gathering will help us react to these risks in the best possible way? Here Lenny Smith, I'm sure, will be leading the charge for us. 
What will happen to asset markets? What will happen to carbon as an asset? What kind of risks do people run? Well, clearly they run physical risks, but they run reputational risks. I don't know how many uh, uh, students at the LSE would want to go and work for a very dirty firm when they graduate. Some, I'm sure, would. LSE's always got people who are contrary. But, and <laughs> it's fun. as they say in LSE, we spend a lot of time agreeing with each other, um, but we actually don't dwell on our agreements, so we spend all our time actually, in terms of intellectual activity, disagreeing uh, with each other. So, but... The story of reputational risk is important and it can be very destructive to a firm and rightly so if its reputation starts to, uh, starts to collapse. So there are all kinds of elements of risk there and you can see economics, finance uh, and indeed psychology at the heart of this kind of story. Low carbon growth will be very much a development story with all the disciplines that come in to the challenges of development. So too uh, combating deforestation. A global deal will be very much about international collaboration, how you put these deals together, how you deal with the problem of free riding, all the way from the esoteric stories of game theory all the way through to the intense practical stories of international relations and international politics. Law will be enormously important. Carbon capture and storage for coal. Who owns the hole in the ground? Holes in the ground will be quite valuable. Who owns them? And who has the right to do what with them? And who's responsible for what if things start to leak? There are really complicated, difficult legal questions uh, here too. And applying to many of the other things. You can see all the disciplines coming at you as soon as you start to talk about the problem. Water, geography, changing climates, uh, environmental stories. I mean, geography and environment absolutely, uh, blindingly, obviously at the heart of all this. Adaptation. How do we deal with these problems? I've already emphasised the importance of information, but I really want to underline it. What kind of information should we be collecting? We have to think about how it would be used. This is statistical decision theory of the biggest possible kind. So how do we put that information together? You can see that every part of the social sciences are here, and all those social sciences have to be informed by the basic underlying science of the problem, and, of course, technology as well, and that's why our collaboration with Imperial uh, is so important uh, in this particular area. Now, I've emphasised that we're here for the long haul. We've got funding for 10 years. This is a programme of work that will take us 25. But it's got to be intense all the way through in terms of its results. We've got to be getting strong results all the time as we go and sharing those results with people. The meeting in Copenhagen at the end of next year will be the most important gathering since the Second World War in terms of its shaping of the future of the planet. I believe that had Keynes and White been sitting down today to design the Bretton Woods institutions rather than in the mid-40s that they would uh, have thought of three sisters, but the three sisters would be a combination of the World Bank and the IMF, the World Trade Organization and a World Environment Organization. We'll get to that reconstruction down the track. We haven't got time to put it together before we do uh, get our agreement in Copenhagen. But we have to be thinking long-term about institutional structures as well. Here again, I hope that the skills of the LSE will be valuable. So this is going to be science, social science. It's going to be public, private. It's going to be foundation, research council, private sector, and university. 
It's going to be all these things, not only in the start, but also in the doing. And above all, it's got to be international. And LSE is the most international of universities. Thank you very much. Nick for that, um, which was a magnificent integration of all the dimensions of the global deal and indeed how we might get there. We've got just a few minutes for questions, not very long I fear, um, and I think there are microphones that are coming down and I think that you are the first, it's always a danger. Right. Can you hear me all right? Yes. In this country. Uh, the need for, in the transitional period before um, emissions trading schemes start to work, taking additional measures. And clearly for CCS to become... because uh, or in spite of the fact that some particular party um, proposed it um, I think that the uh, important thing here is to recognise that to use coal without carbon capture and storage is dangerous and that we need to learn very quickly about the viability of carbon capture and storage on a commercial scale there's only one way to learn the answer to that question, and that is to do it. Um, it isn't commercially viable at the moment. Um, that learning process will be a benefit to uh, the whole of humankind. So I think there's a very powerful argument for supporting directly for a while, maybe 10, 15 years, um, carbon capture and storage beyond simply through the carbon price. If all goes well, that support fades away as the higher carbon prices start to kick in and the experiments turn out to be successful as we hope they will. So that kind of interim support, I think, uh, for coal is enormously important. If we don't learn how to do it well, we're in real trouble because um, India and China will be 75-80% coal for uh, their expansion of electricity supply uh, over the next 15, 20, 30 years. Poland doesn't want to turn to Russian gas. So the challenge of finding out quickly whether that works or not is enormously important. In my view, my view fully justifies government support um, for a while. But different governments should all be involved here. They should all be participating 
in this experiment, but including the UK government? Just down here, front, second row. Uh, your remorseless logic about the need to get down to an average of two tons per capita by 2050 uh, is unanswerable. But there doesn't seem to be a single developed or large developing country, which is... Uh, <laughs> that's for making a contribution here. Um, <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a single developed or large developing country uh, which is anywhere near uh, on track towards that goal. Uh, we will say here that the process towards Copenhagen, which is only 14 months away, is tortuous and the likelihood of a radical agreement being reached at the moment looks remote. Uh, what is your hope that we might achieve at Copenhagen next year and do you see signs in any country of sufficient seriousness and urgency uh, to achieve a goal of two tons per capita? First, let me make a very general observation, um, but it matters. Um, if we decide it's all too difficult, it's uh, never going to happen, nobody will take it seriously, um, it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy, and uh, the right idea would be to invest in hats and suntan uh, cream. Um, I, I really want to make this point very strongly. If we decide it's all too difficult, it will be exactly that. Uh, we have to be realistic. We can't be naive, but we have to be um, answering the question, how can we get there, uh, rather than it's all too difficult. Two tons per capita, we can describe what it looks like. It means zero carbon um, electricity, and on the back of that, close to zero carbon transport. And it means stopping deforestation, indeed reforesting, and it means much more energy efficiency. All these things actually we broadly understand how to do, and we're giving ourselves 40 years to get there. I mean, as fast as possible, but we're giving ourselves 40 years together to get there. France went from very little to 75% nuclear in 20 years. Um, some parts of Germany already close to 50% wind. Um, in uh, Brazil, um, 20 years or so, and every car uh, for a while now coming off the being sold in Brazil has to be flexi fuel. You go to a gas station in Brazil and it's like a bar. You know, you can pull this pint and that pint and the other pint. But that's infrastructure. That's got in. You can move fast if you want to. And uh, we understand not everything, we can learn loads on the way, and that's one of the joys in all this, but I think it's perfectly possible. If you ask about the progress that's been made, you have to recognise just how young all this is. At the G8 summit of 2005, I was there for Africa, but I saw the climate change uh, story. People just rolled their eyes. They didn't know about uh, this subject. It all seemed incredibly esoteric. People mean politicians uh, now. Um, that doesn't happen anywhere near so much. It's radically changing, and, and some of you guys are making sure that uh, it changes. So if you ask how far we've come in the last three or four years, I think it's quite remarkable. The challenge, of course, is going to be to, to keep that going. 
But I believe that's why we have to have this kind of discussion, why we have to have these kinds of research institutes, why we have to share results in this, uh, in this kind of forum. So I would, like all economists, look at the rate of change. Uh, and the rate of change is very powerfully in the strong direction. Do people understand it? Well, the good people of Australia voted out um, the appalling John Howard, and um, it's really nice to be outside government. I have to. <laughs> and they re-elected Kevin. They, sorry, elected Kevin Rudd, who signed uh, uh, Kyoto. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger got elected on a uh, re-elected on the increased majority on this kind of platform. All the political parties in the UK support it, and they compete on this issue. And I hope they continue to compete on this issue. So the politics is changing. It won't all be one way. There'll be setbacks. It'll be difficult. But I think it's possible. Could I, uh, the man with the yellow tie there, can I ask you to give your name? We all know the golf correspondent of the Financial Times, but uh, we don't know everybody. Uh, Yes, I'm Terry Barker. I'm founder of the Cambridge Trust for New Thinking in Economics. Uh, I've also been uh, IPCC uh, coordinating lead author um, over the last 10 years, and my particular uh, contribution to the IPCC in applied economics of this whole problem. So uh, thank you, uh, Lord Stern, for a very uh, entertaining and uh, important lecture. Uh, my question is about risks, and, I'm, and it links the risks in, to the global financial system with the risks of the climate. Uh, so let's start off with the scientific evidence. Uh, Sorry, uh, you, it, that, that sounds ominously like a speech. Uh, okay, well, let <laughs> me go straight to the, uh, the yeah. question then. Um, so my question is, do you agree that massive investment in decarbonisation justified by a high carbon price and social discount rates would offset, first of all, the long-term climate change risks and, secondly, the short-term risks of depression uh, brought, around, brought about by the misbehaviour of the banks, particularly the, those led by Goldman Sachs, the investment banks, in creating a large amounts of bad money over the last 20 years? Um, I should say, for those of you who don't know, that Terry was uh, a very important figure in... Uh, the examination of the technology issues in the Stern Review and we learnt uh, enormously from him and I hope that uh, we continue to learn from you, Terry, and uh, the Cambridge Trust for New Thinking in Economics must be right for uh, economics is terribly important, trust uh, even more so, and we'd all want to be new, so it's uh, a very important enterprise. Basically the answer to your question is yes. I think that um, This is a very important investment area. It's dynamic. Uh, It will be in the sense that we'll learn tremendously and rates of return will will go up over time. And we're going to need to find a strong source of growth out of a uh, very difficult economic um, demand position, which is likely to um, continue for a few years. I don't know how many a few is, but it's not one. And uh, so as an investment story... Um, with the possibilities of the Schumpeterian growth dynamic to it, I really do think it makes uh, makes a lot of sense. Purple tie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lord Stern. Uh, my name is Bramley Lindor, former LSE student. I run Worldview Impact, and we are reforesting in uh, Southeast Asia to create livelihoods for the poor and reduce poverty. My question to you, Lodstone, I come from the northeast frontier of India. As glaciers are melting in the north, also sea levels are rising in Bangladesh. Now, I come from the part where we have 500 kilometers of unguarded border with Bangladesh, and India is building a wall. Mm. The question is about public health. 
the health implications of climate change. The re, the, while I was doing research at the LSE two years ago, the area where I picked for sample village didn't have malaria. But I got malaria and I saw hundreds of people dying out of malaria. Some experts say more people will die in Africa from climate change diseases than poverty is ever killed. Is that true? And if so, are governments prepared to deal with the public implications of climate change? And you also said you're not a champion of nuclear energy. The same villages where I was doing research has the largest deposit of uranium high grade in my country. And India is a nuclear state, has signed a deal with the French government and also going to sign with the U.S. government. But is mining of uranium really safe, the health implications of that? And what can be done in the energy mix? I don't know where uranium comes from, the U.K. and France, but what about the people who sit close to the mine? Do they pay the collateral damage for the country? Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, in April, I spent uh, a week or so in Assam and uh, in, in northeast India and discussed with the chief minister and others um, some of the challenges of low carbon, uh, low carbon growth, and there was a very powerful interest in that story. Um, I think the whole story of um, climate change and development, as I said right at the beginning, but I didn't dwell on it, uh, are in inextricably linked. Um, if we don't tackle climate change, we will make the environment uh, for development and increasing incomes so hostile that it will be very difficult. The malaria argument I find a bit difficult. I mean, if we wanted as a world to eliminate malaria, we really could. And indeed, um, uh, at the uh, summit in, uh, in the UN a, a week or so ago, um, the world leaders declared for exactly that. So I'm always a little bit cautious about using the argument of the extending of malaria uh, to justify action on climate change because we should be stamping out malaria just as we stamped out smallpox and we should do it quickly and we really could if we, uh, if we wanted to for fairly modest resources. But the dangers of climate change are uh, still more radical than those kinds of diseases. Um, whole areas will become uninhabitable and people will ha have to move. Uh, Bangladesh, as you mentioned, um, big parts of that will be uh, submerged. The glaciers in the Himalayas will retreat even faster. And the big rivers of Asia, you know, going around um, uh, clockwise from the Yellow River to the Yangtze, to the Brahmaputra, to the Ganges, to Jamna and the Indus, they feed countries and they're the key sources of water for countries with three billion people. So most of this story is about water or the lack of it in uh, some shape or form, storms, floods, droughts, sea level rise, and the demolition of lives and livelihoods um, that come from that, including the big conflict from uh, mass movement populations. Those are the huge dangers that I see. Of course there will be different patterns of vectors of diseases, uh, particularly if we're not sensible on tackling things like uh, malaria. But I wouldn't actually put the main argument there. We're running quite close up to time. I'll take the man right at the back with the dark blue shirt. Yeah, that's it. We've heard a lot about the um, greenwash panacea of uh, carbon capture and storage, but there seem to be very few uh, public intellectuals with a, a thermodynamics and engineering background who are willing to point out publicly the disadvantages of this, namely the very heavy energy overhead in doing it, however you cut it, 
you cannot uh, buck the laws of thermodynamics. Even if you're given limitless supplies of the perfect semi-permeable membrane for nothing, it will still cost you a lot of extra energy. Therefore, you need a lot more coal to supply a given amount of electricity. And there are other problems, such as possibilities of leakage, and also mining this increased coal, which is going to be largely mined open cast, will result in significant releases of methane directly into the atmosphere, both uh, in the short term and the long term. So I think we should start winding down this talk of this uh, panacea and start talking seriously about uh, nuclear power. And uh, there are still further hope for... Uh, new research in, in improving photovoltaics, so not giving hope on that, but I think we ought to start winding down this. It's significant that although companies are touting it for research grants and departments are playing with it and saying you can do this, do that, do the other, um, nobody is, it's like the Empress New Clothes situation, it isn't really going to work and that's why nobody is seriously backing it, but they're not being straight with the public about it. Can you please comment? <laughs> I would congratulate you in apparently knowing the answers to research questions which some of the best scientists and technologists in the world are still working on. It does cost... No, you've, you've, you had quite a long say. Let me have mine. It's the, um, it does cost a little bit extra in terms of maybe 20% extra in energy. It, we have to be able to price the extra cost of doing carbon capture and storage for coal that will come from experiments on a uh, decent scale, and that's the kind of learning that we have to have. I didn't at any point say I knew the answer to that question. What I did say is a question which can only be answered, can be answered only through major empirical investigation. I saw some of my colleagues and friends who know rather more about science and technology than I do jumping up and down and very eager to take you on, and I'm more than happy to introduce you afterwards. But <laughs> we, we are not saying we know the answer, but what I am saying is the answer to that question is terribly important and can, uh, can be found only by direct uh, examination. I would not rule out any of the technologies. We, would have, we have to investigate the potential of all of them, including the risks of all of them, including the risks of um, biofuels, including the risks of uh, nuclear and so on. But I do think that the potential for those technologies, including algae and enhanced photosynthesis and all the whole range of technologies that are coming at us, is enormous. If just 10% of the ideas whispered in my ear every week work, we're going to be pretty successful on this. So let them all develop, let them all compete with each other, let's analyse them carefully for their general equilibrium consequences in terms of the world function, way the world functions, and that's why we have two Grantham Institutes, uh, one at the uh, Imperial and another one at the LSE. Thanks. I'm going to draw things to a close now because we, uh, one of the reasons why we have such a successful evening event programme in this school is that we do actually stop occasionally and um, we let people go home to eat. So what I'm going to do is to thank um, Nicholas for the Munich Re uh, support. We'll hear more about that initiative as we go on. To thank Jeremy for his hugely generous support to get this institute going. 
and to thank uh, Nick for a fascinating speech and for you for being part of this inaugural venture, both physically in terms of the room and also intellectually in terms of the Institute. Thank you.